when I was back in South Carolina a few weeks ago, uh, Ella has gotten into where she likes to go through scrapbooks and to see photos. And as we were flipping through there, I, I found a photo of an old pumpkin patch down Blackstock Road on, in front of an old Anglican church back home. And uh, it was a photo of me sitting in a pumpkin patch with my mom. I must have been probably uh, Silas's age, maybe a little older. And uh, as we've gotten old, as we've had kids, I enjoy taking them to the pumpkin patch. And one of my favorite parts about October is watching those little children anxiously come home from the pumpkin patch to messily carve a face into their new malleable canvases. And as they finish the design, they, they walk outside excitedly into the dark and they pop the lid off of their pumpkin and they stick a light down inside of it to, to illuminate the eyes of this design so that it can gaze into the darkness around it. Well, I do have a calendar. I am aware that it is nowhere near October as much as I wish it would be. However, I think that there is something that we can resonate with concerning these little jack-o'-lanterns. You, you see, every believer here tonight understands a few key doctrines that we all confess that's universal to the Christian faith. That God is good, that God is in control, and that this God who is good and in control is the one who is worthy of our trust. But when the hardships of life darken the world around us, do the doctrines that we claim to hold inside of us illuminate us to grant us a perspective to gaze into the hardships of life that surround us? It's easy for us to claim that we believe in the sovereignty of God until you're driving to South Carolina and you hit 85 traffic in Gaffney and then you start to begin doubting how this might could possibly be used for your sanctification. And it can get a little bit darker than that to the multiple hardships of our life. But as we gaze at the Christian life, we have these set of orthodox doctrines that we declare and then we have these life events that inevitably come. And when they do meet one another, which they do on a daily basis, do the doctrines that we declare give us a perspective to gaze at the hardships of life and to interpret them as a Christian should? Michael Kruger said, In the Christian life, we vastly underestimate the amount of suffering that we will be called to endure. And we overestimate how well we will handle it when it does come. Have you found yourself there? Maybe not tonight, but in the past. And as you hear this, you can look back and you can think to yourself about how your doctrine did or did not inform you. Are you struggling with a crisis of faith this evening and ashamed to share the doubts that you are dealing with? When you look at the world around you this evening, do you find yourself questioning, does it even pay off to follow Christ at all? If so, you aren't alone. And tonight we will find that even gifted and godly men such as Asaph have been there. And Asaph is extending a hand out to beat up pilgrims like you and I to help us to be equipped with godly lenses to look into the darkness that does surround us. At the forefront of our psalm, you will notice that this is a psalm that is accredited to Asaph. It says at the very beginning in small black words in most translations that I've checked, a psalm of Asaph. Now, although the first verse comes after this, this is what is known as a superscript. I am of the persuasion that the superscript is a part of the Scripture. And so when you read a psalm of Asaph here, you are being introduced to the writer, the purpose, and perhaps even some of the context at the psalm at hand. Uh, now, to defend that, and, and I came to that position through a, a book called How to Read and Understand the Psalms by Waltke and Zaspel. Um, 
they give a few reasons about why we believe that the superscripts are a part of God's holy word. And here's a few of them. First, the textual evidence for the genuineness of the superscripts is unanimous. Every copy of the Psalms that we possess in the originals has the superscripts as a part of them. Uh, secondarily, all other songs in the Old Testament have superscripts. The Psalter is no exception to them. The evidence suggests that the superscripts are standard. Third, the superscript of Psalm 18 is explicit in his attribution of the psalm to David. And this is verified in, in 2 Samuel 22. So verifying the accuracy of the superscripts. And, and to me, the one that pushed me over is that Jesus and the New Testament writers build their arguments on the historical accuracy of the superscripts. Uh, this is done in passages like Matthew 22, 41 through 45 where Jesus assumes the reliability of the superscript as he mentions David to be the author of Psalm 110 and mentioning how he is both David's son and David's Lord. Peter similarly takes that and assumes the accuracy of the superscript of Psalm 110 in Acts 2 in his sermon in verses 25 through 32. And finally, for you guys that might be Septuagint users, which I enjoy the Septuagint, uh, by the year 200 B.C., the Greek translators of the Psalter did not know how to translate some of the words in the superscription. And some have used that as an argument to say, well, then they're not valid. However, I think that that validifies the antiquity of these superscripts and shows that they have been around for a lot longer. You say, well, how do we understand them today? Archaeological findings have allowed us to interpret that. So there's my verification for the importance of the superscript. I'll quit being a nerd and we'll, we'll march on with the sermon. With that in mind, with the understanding of this being a psalm attributed to the authorship of Asaph, we need to ask ourselves a question immediately. And the question essentially is, who is Asaph? Well, in 1 Chronicles 6.31, David has brought the ark to Jerusalem from Kirjath-Jerim, where it was for about 20 years. Now, when he sets it up, he introduces something that's interesting to the worship around the ark. And it is that David introduces music worship to the temple worship, tabernacle worship, that was not existent during the time of Moses. And when he sets it up, he introduces music, and he chooses two music ministers that we find in 1 Chronicles 6.39. It is Asaph and Asaph's brother. So what we know so far is that Asaph is a Levite who has been appointed as one of the music ministers around the ark, and other passages later tell us about this man as being a seer. Asaph was a seer or a prophet. His being a Levite is quite important for us to understand at the outset. Because according to Deuteronomy 18.1, all the inheritance that Asaph has is the Lord himself as a Levite. Deuteronomy 18.1 says, The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levite, shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat of the offerings the Lord hath made by fire and his portion. So the Lord himself is the inheritance of the Levites. Among the Levites is our man Asaph. As we dive into this text today, we will find that even impressive spiritual leaders have struggles and hardships and come close to spiritual shipwreck, despite the beauty of all that they have received from the Lord. You see, Asaph was aware of how dangerous this situation that he lists in Psalm 73 is, and so he records it not only for his own beneficial reflection, but for the nurturing of the faith of the children of Israel, and ultimately, by the pen of the Spirit, 
for the good of us today as sojourners in this world. As I prepared this sermon, I checked through ten or so Bibles, and yours hopefully will go along with this. At the beginning of Psalm 73, just before it, you might read something that says Book 3. Your psalm, your, the Psalter is divided into multiple books, five books. Psalm 3, if you're into marking your Bibles, is the book that is ascribed to uh, psalms to minister to Israel during their exile. These are exile psalms here. So that's the context of how they are supposed to minister to the saints. So to summarize so far, we are about to read about how, an, how envy corrupted the mind of a man whose inheritance was God, who is greater than all the world, and how dire this situation of his perspective being changed was. And it was this man whose psalm was placed in such a way that it was meant to minister to Israel, who also found themselves in exile later on. This is a psalm about a man who only had God writing to a people in exile who literally have nothing but God. In verse 1, Asaph makes a confident declaration that came about after a time of serious doubt. He says, truly God is good to Israel. And to expound upon who that is, he says, well, they are, this is uh, what is known as, as descriptive wording here, truly God is good to Israel, who are they? It is the such are as pure in heart. Now, if God is good to these people, and exclusively so in this case, we need to ask ourselves, who are the pure in heart? Because we understand, as even alluded to in this morning's sermon, that not all, as Paul says, who are Israel, are Israel truly. They are not all pure in heart, but who are the pure in heart? Jesus mentions in his Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The heart is a figure of speech that refers to the to the center of a man. It's a sense of his innermost commitments and affections. And so for those to be pure, that, um, for those to be pure means that our heart is purified. It is righteous. It is a heart that is wholly committed to the Lord. And how do we achieve such a heart? Well, the repentant David in Psalm 51 teaches us a little bit about a pure heart. Psalm 51 verse 9 says, to God, hide your face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Therefore, tonight we can move forward knowing that God is good to whom? To those whom He, was, he has cleansed, to those He has made pure, to those He has transformed. And as New Testament Christians, how does this come about? but by the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whose blood we are made purified. But this isn't all that the psalm has to say, is it? We could end it there. This is certainly a doctrinal truth that we could feast upon and meditate on all week long. Truly, yes, verily, this is absolutely so. God is good to His people that He has purified. Amen. And that's enough for us to hold on to in the darkest of hours. But Asaph knew this doctrine, but he had a hard time seeing through that lens in this time. He says, but as for me, verse 2, but as for me, yes, God is good to Israel, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Now, in verse 1, notice the present tense. God is good to Israel, 
And then this is a conclusive statement that he puts at the very beginning. He's saying, essentially, yes, God is good to Israel, but, but I didn't always believe that. That's not an unfaltering truth that I've always held on to. And then he speaks in the past tense. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why, Seth? Verse 3, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is a psalm set aside for the people of God struggling with loss, doubt, and concern as they look at the world around them and see the world prospering in sin while these people of God are suffering. And as we dive into the body of this passage tonight to make it applicable to us all, when you find your faith troubled by the prosperity of the world around you, remember point one, the danger of a corrupt perspective. The danger of a corrupt perspective. As we look at this passage, we find ourselves startled by these heavenly, heavily contrasted statements from verse 1 to verse 3. In verse 2, Asaph tells us that his feet almost stumbled and that he nearly slipped. This is a figure of speech telling us that his whole person was shaken. What he thought was grounded has been disturbed. His faith, his confidence, his heart, and his soul are troubled. In short, Asaph is telling us, there was a point where I almost walked away from the Lord. The foundation that I thought was beneath me was shaken, and I wasn't as settled as I thought I was. In verse 3, he will describe how this took place, with each line giving more detail. Asaph, how did you almost apostatize? How did you almost fall away? Well, I was envious of the boastful. How did you get so envious of them? Well, it was when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In the latter half, we notice that it says that his perspective was corrupted as he writes that he saw the prosperity of the wicked. What we learn immediately is that perspective influences how we interpret the world around us. Imagine it this way. Let's say you're driving down the road and one of your tires goes flat. Now, if you're a high school boy who's on your way to take this lovely young girl on your first date, that is a world-ending tragedy. However, if you were on the way to, say, a dinner that you did not want to go to, but you only said yes so they would leave you alone, the flat tire might not be that bad after all. Your perspective changes everything around you. And the perspective that Asaph has isn't through the lens of the goodness of his faithful God. He's looking through the lens of envy. What he says in Psalm 73, 13-14, he says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. The first dangerous step towards shipwreck is a clouded perspective. Secondarily, what we find at the beginning of verse 3 is that this clouded perspective resulted in him being envious of the boastful around him. About this, Thomas LeBlanc says, If you are touched with envy at seeing the peace of the wicked, shut your eyes. Do not look at it. For envious eyes think anything vast on which they gaze. I read a story this week about two ancients 
who were arguing about how to enlarge one's eyesight, as we've been discussing progressive lenses. One was arguing that glass is the way to go. The other was arguing that if he came up with a special concoction, that that would fix the issue. The narrator, while watching them both argue, steps up and says, I have the cure. It's envy. It's envy. And so a, a crowd gathered around him, and he explained to them that envy is the greatest progressive lens that you could have because it makes everything in sight seem greater than it really is. And this is the story of Asaph's perspective. Just listen to how he describes the men that he is envious of. Verse 4 through 5, he says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. So what is he, what is he seeing as he looks at their lives? Their lives are easy, man. It seems to him that they never have hardships. He looks at them and he says, they don't even agonize in their final days of life. They have perfect health and feel great, and then one day they die easily and think nothing about it. Look how easy they have it. Their days are full of joy and great health, and then they die happily. And look at me. Verse 13 to 14, I am chastised daily. And they trot along happily without any burden, and death to them is not even something that plagues their minds. In verses 6 through 9, Therefore, because of the ease of their life, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks throughout the earth. He writes that all of their ease in life has caused them to be violent and arrogant people who have more than they can ever dream of needing. In verse 9, such prosperity causes them to think that since they own all that they could want on earth, they turn their mouth towards the heavens and boast against the heavens because they are so proud of the control that they have. Verses 10 through 11, Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a cup, of a full cup, are drained by them, and they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Now, in verses 10 through 11, there is some uh, translational differences throughout a few works, and, and definitely some disagreement throughout commentators, but I'll give you where I wound up here. I believe that the primary meaning here is that these successful and wicked sinners aren't only proud. But they're popular. And, and not only are they popular, but their followers come and drink whatever they're handing out to them. W whatever they hand them in the cup of life or wisdom or insight, their followers just drink it up. These are a proud people, a prosperous people, and these are a popular people for the people who like alliteration in here tonight. These are a people who have popularity and their followers drink up everything that they have. And what is their attitude as they walk through this life with those three boastful P's alliterations that we just came up with? It is that God doesn't know what we're doing. And if He does know, He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He won't do anything about it anyway. As Asaph looks at this, his heart is torn to shreds. His godly lenses are ripped off and they are crushed beneath his feet. 
And his heart is full of jealousy and frustration and doubt. As we read in verses 12 through 14, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always, always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. What does this clouded perspective cause us to do? Notice, he mentions nothing but a sublime way of life through the wicked. All, they never get sick. They never suffer until their death. They're never broke. They never have people who hate them. They're popular and they prosper in everything that they do. And they have peace all the way until the times of death. But here I am serving God and my life is not near as great as theirs. And they're prospering in wickedness. Do you see how that lens manipulates everything around you? It minimizes all of the heartache of the sin in their life. And it maximizes all of the benefits of sinners in a sinful world. So as you're scrolling through Instagram or Pinterest and you find your heart developing great tendencies of dissatisfaction at all the wonderful houses that the moms on social media have made, let's not pretend that everyone on there has their life figured out either. Because in this life where we have this envious lens put on, we tend to emphasize all their glories and minimize all the hardships of those who do not know Christ. And this is the clouded perspective of Asaph. This is the clouded perspective of Asaph. In verse 15, something changes though. There's a snag in the road towards apostasy. This rapidly descending heart of Asaph meets a barrier. And those of us who have found ourselves in this place, you might be able to testify to this barrier as a saving grace for you as well. It is our second point, which is that when we find our faith troubled by the prosperity of the world around us, we should remember the people of God. What does he say as his heart is delving into clouded perspective and near apostasy? Before he goes public with his thoughts, he said, If I had said, I will speak thus, or these thoughts that I have, Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Asaph is at the pinnacle of his struggle here. And doubts concerning the value of religion and the faithfulness of God to his people are plaguing his mind. However, before he voices his thoughts, he is seized by the thought of how such beliefs would harm the faith of those around him whom he cared for. I can't voice these thoughts. There are saints around me, and such doubts will surely crush their faith. I would betray the children of God. Asaph isn't doubting the reality of God. He's just doubting the value of serving God. And here we find that this affectionate love for God's people is a means that prevents his shipwreck from going public. What we should take away from this passage is not that we cannot express our doubts and pains to our brothers and sisters. The New Testament makes it clear concerning the bearing of our burdens. But it is that the people of God are a lifeline for falling saints in their time of turmoil. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself so consumed with doubt and frustration that it seems that the truths you've always confessed must be true for everyone but me? 
And you find that the Lord uses just the presence of the people of God. And the love that has been fostered between you from years of camaraderie holds you tight when it seems the rest of the world is shaking around you. This seems to be the snag that pulled Asaph back as he was going down this road. And this is an experience that I fear is being lost in the church of today. One of the primary results of enlightenment is hyper-individualism. And I think that's why we find such an issue with a lack of church discipline today. Because when the church up the street is only interested in how big we can get, they don't care about the churches who are trying to discipline the people among them. They're just worried about how we can grow quickly. And if your church does want to exercise discipline against you, well, who cares anyway? I only filled a pew and I didn't like them anyhow. I think that what we find here is the importance of the people of God and a foster relationship and affection among them. And it's hard to develop relationships that are going to hold you in the darkest time of your life when the most conversations you have with these people are the five minutes that it takes you to get to your, from here out to the parking lot. Amen. These are foster relationships that are genuine and that are sustaining in the time of hardship. Now in verse 16, we find that the struggle of Asaph is not totally resolved. This is not the climax of the sermon or the resolution of the text, but it is that it merely prevented him from going public. And, and what does he do? He goes home and he, he asks himself, how can I reconcile this? How can I reconcile the prosperity of the wicked with the goodness of God? And he confesses, it's just too much for me. It's too much when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. And so I can't voice my thoughts because it will hurt those around me. And I can't voice my thoughts in my own mind because it crushes me. I have nowhere to go. This is a man who doesn't know where to turn. So he does the only thing that he knows to do. He goes to worship. It's the only thing that he knows to do. Tonight, if you find your faith troubled by the prosperity of the world around you, Finally, remember the person of God. So what we have seen thus far is the danger of a clouded perspective. We have seen the blessedness of the people of God. And lastly, we see the meditation upon the person of God. Verse 17. Just the switch there is beautiful. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Now, as I studied this passage, I was a little surprised to see how little commentary there was on verse 17. And Pastor Kay was able to sympathize with me and to say that when it comes to commentators, it's never the questions that you really need answered that they're interested in addressing anyway. It's usually the, it's usually the ones that everybody already has the answers to that they're, that they're okay with writing about. Um, what I found oftentimes was as they glossed over this passage, they would use the word temple to refer to the sanctuary. Now, I'm willing to be proven wrong, but if this is the Asaph that we read that David appointed, I have a hard time believing that he outlived David and then endured until Solomon's completion of the temple. There's no way. There's no way. And so we could understand that this is not a man who is ministering in the Mosaic tabernacle, and he's not ministering in the Solomonic temple, and so he's, he's a song leader around the Davidic tabernacle. Now, what we know about this 
is that David is carrying, remember, he's carrying the ark from Kirjath to Jerusalem. And then we notice the incident with, with the ark falling off. And, and, and we, the ark gets left at Obed until prosperity comes. And then he goes and happily brings it back to Jerusalem. And what we find, what happens in Jerusalem is that the ark is set up, a tent is put around it, and David hires or enlists full-time music ministers to encircle it. I'm trying to paint a picture in your mind here. This, this, this crushed and, and defeated Asaph is, is unaware of where he can go and who he can speak to. And so he wakes up and he walks to the temple. And what does he behold? What does he behold as he looks at the ark? That she is enthroned with worship. As he looks at her, she is, she is enthroned or enveloped in worshipers. In short, as the discouraged Asaph makes his way to worship, he is struck by the reminder that the glorious God of Israel invites his people to worship and to adore him in spite of what may have taken place around them. What lessons did he learn at this worship service? I'll give you a few things. First, about the person of God, Asaph learns that God is righteous. Sin will not go unpunished. He says this, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then, there's the perspective shift, then I understood therein. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. In verse 17 through 20, Asaph's perspective is reoriented as he is reminded that though the wicked prosper for a little while, their pleasures will fade like a dream that you are rudely awakened from, and that God will not wink at their sin and let it pass by. For you who have children, perhaps you can resonate with your sweet dreams being interrupted Rudely in the middle of the night. That has happened every day this week. These are people who live, as it were, a delightful, sublime dream. And what does Asaph recall at the temple or at the tabernacle? It vanishes like a dream. God will not allow them to flourish forever, but judgment will come upon them. Asaph is reminded that the God of Israel is a God of righteousness. Tonight, if you are here and you are comfortable in life, if you have everything that you could have ever wanted, if you say, I am the staple image of the American dream, and you think that things just couldn't go any better for you, so you don't know that you need God as a crutch, you are in a dangerous place. I spoke with the college students a few months ago about whether or not he was saved. And he was very clear to let me know, no. And this is a kid who, who attends a fundamentalist church every week. And I asked why. He says, because life is going so well right now, I don't see the need for it anyway. What good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? There is no salvation that is found in the pleasures of this world, but only in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work for sinners. 
Christian, if you were doubting the goodness of God as you feel like you've, you've suffered, you're suffering, and those around you are sinning and living it up, be reminded of the righteousness of God. And let that draw your heart near to worship Him for His saving grace in your life. And then allow it to cause your heart not to envy those around you, but to pity the blindness of their souls. Asaph is reoriented as he considers the righteousness of Israel's God. Second, Asaph is reminded that God is trustworthy and that it is foolish to doubt him. Verse 21 and 22. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In verses 21 through 22, Asaph is grieved by how foolishly he doubted the Lord. This conviction weighed upon him heavily. Verse 21 could be interpreted literally saying, My conscience is grieved. And and to make it a little more tactful, it, it could also read, I have been pierced through my kidneys. My, my, my heart is overwhelmed and the immensity of this pressure stabs into the center of my being. The conviction of his heart is not that he had questions. He is grieved that his envious perspective had him living as an animal who is only concerned with the here and now and not concerned with the future. Where do your eyes rest today? Are you consumed with introspection? Are you consumed with making sure that you are keeping up with the Joneses? Are you consumed with the here and the now? With little contemplation about the immensity of eternity? This is the grief of Asaph. And he says, I live like an animal. Not worried about tomorrow, but only conscientious and worried about today. He is reminded that God is trustworthy and that believer, it is foolish to doubt him. It is foolish to doubt him. Third, he learned that God is faithful. God is faithful. 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward you'll receive me into glory. God is faithful, Asaph found, first, through our heartache and our unbelief. Yes, Asaph behaved foolishly, but even when it seemed his grip was loosening, he is now able to look back and to see that it was the Lord who held on to Asaph. Several years ago, I went through a time of serious struggle, and I was riddled with questions and doubt. And I didn't have the answers, but I did have just one thought that I held on to through months of immense agony and depression. It was that even the weakest hands grasp a hold of the greatest and strongest Christ. And that when it seems that my weak hand seems to be slipping, I will never slip out of the strong hand of my Lord, the Christ. Asaph's feet, he said, I almost stumbled. I almost fell away. But what does he find as he begins to have his perspective reoriented? I am continually with you. 
I am continually with you. Those whom Christ takes a hold of, he will never let go. We dwell safely within the hands of our loving Lord. He is faithful through our heartache and unbelief. Secondarily, he is faithful to guide us through life and death. He says in verse 24, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. This newly restored Asaph is reminded of the faithfulness of the word of God to equip us with a godly perspective. And that through this life we will walk by the word he's given us until we are delivered safely to gaze upon him face to face. I am going to uh, speak at a, a Bible study on Tuesday. I was invited by a local pastor and I'm studying Psalm 119, 145 through 152. And he talks about, I'm crying with my whole heart. And, and what is he looking to? It's not the prosperity, but he's asking that there might be an invigoration of hope as I meditate upon your law. And he says, I wake up before the sun's up. And I'm awake while the night watches do their guard. And I look to your word for hope, for sustenance. What is Asaph's delight? What is the means that Asaph knows he will be sustained by? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's not a, a magical shiver that he had at a service. And it's not some otherworldly experience. It is an abundance of faith sustained that God has given me his word and that it is faithful to guide me until I see him face to face. If you are hurting tonight, he has given you a guide, it is his word. It is His Word. Now, unless I'm misinterpreted, though, and we think that we can go be our own little popes and stay at home because I have His Word, you will notice as you read about the Bereans in the New Testament that when they study the Scriptures, it's never singularly or alone, but it's always together. Just wanted to put that in there. Just because we like to attack individualism when I get to talk. To be our all when there is none else. That's the third thing. God is faithful. He is faithful to be our own when there is none else. Verse 25 through 26. Isn't this precious? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The most blessed reminder that Asaph received was that God was his portion forever. As I read through this passage, I find it interesting to see how this text develops. Referring to the, the names of, of God. <clears throat> In the beginning, he uses the word Elohim, which is a really generic name when it comes to deities. That can be ascribed both to the God of Israel and to the deities that they find in, in the scriptures as well, even the false idols. And through his perspective shift, we notice a development of the intimacy of his name. He begins with Elohim. When you see the word God in verse 1, it's Elohim. Truly God is good to Israel. But later on, it develops. After his encounter, he begins to call God Adon or Adonai, Lord. And then where do we find him in verses 25 through 26? Excuse me, in verse 28. 
I have put my trust in Adonai Yahweh, in the faithful covenant Lord over Israel. It is this sense of intimacy that is sparked within the depths of Asaph's heart. He's not merely a distant deity, but he's my faithful covenant God. He's my faithful covenant God. I point that out to say that as our perspectives are shifted from the things going on around us in this world and back towards the God who loves us and cares for us, we will find our hearts sparked with love for Him. In the beginning, Asaph doubted the faithfulness of God. In the end, Asaph is declaring to us all that he trusts in his covenant-keeping God and lives to tell others about all that he has done for him. When Asaph's perspective was on the world, he couldn't speak because it would be detrimental to the faith of others around him. But when his perspective was shifted around the character of God, his compassion for the intimacy of God stoked in him a desire to live that he might speak of all the Lord has done for him. In conclusion tonight, we are reminded that Christ was one upon the earth with no place to rest his head, but lived in accordance and to the fulfillment of the law of God, dying that we might be saved. And as verse 24 says, he was received into glory. It is through the work of Christ for us that 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are now a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may feel forsaken. You may feel alone. You may feel like you've been given the short end of the stick. But for those who believe, we have Christ as our inheritance. And with that is the lens through which we see the world around us. And if that is the lens that we see the world around us through, what else can we do but to live in love with him and to tell others about the one that we are in love with? I constantly meditate. I did preach it a few months ago on, on 1 John 3, 1 through 3, that we will one day see him as he is and we will be like him. How that causes us to reorient how we're looking at the world around us. Where are my priorities now? How deep are my tent pegs and how deeply do I desire to see him? And I hope that perhaps tonight if our eyes are gazing towards the wrong things of this life, on, on today's irrelevant, inconsequential issues rather than the greater picture of Christ and his glory which then informs the small things, make God by his word, by the power of his spirit, reorient us to bask in the greatness of God and wear that as the lens by which we look at the world around us. I'll give you a few lessons and then I'll close. <clears throat> as those whom Christ has made pure in heart by his own blood, we are not exempt from the hardships of this life. However, we are assured that he is always near. And this brightens our vision in the darkest night. Yes, believer, there is no promise in the scriptures that you will be the most prosperous person in Burlington. But there is a promise that you have the greatest inheritance that all the universe cannot even contain. And it is the Lord God Almighty. 
who is not only a God, but if you are in Christ, he is your God. He is yours and you are his. And he is good to you, his people. Secondarily, as a doubting and forgetful people, God has given us a community to walk with in giving us his church. Pastor B spoke on that this morning, made a hit at that, and it has come up regularly, I think, over the last few weeks in my own devotional life about the importance of the local church and the gift that she is for your sustenance. John Gill said, a step away from her is your first step toward apostasy. God has given you the church. Do not neglect her. There is nothing better on CBS tonight than what you can find in the scriptures tonight. Now, when we're talking about who's speaking, there's some argument to, to be made there. The fourth stringer's up tonight, so, you know, CBS might have something better. But where the scriptures are preached, CBS cannot compete. Neither can the affairs of this life. God has given us his church to sustain us, to strengthen us, and to help us to hold fast. Thirdly, as we face hardships this week, God has set aside a day for refreshment and remembrance in the Lord's day. We must not neglect it. Worship is vital for the Christian. As a father with young children, a four-year-old and a one-year-old, I understand that attending two services on the Lord's Day can be quite difficult. However, I find it hard for me to cultivate a proper response and reason for why I should bail out of church, even with the hardships of having two young children. Even if we do attend Beacon's early morning service, it is not early so we can merely get the Lord out of our way and enjoy the final day of vacation before work. One thing I love about how we have our services structured here is because we have to wake up so early. What's the first thing you're doing on the Lord's Day? Preparing to enter into the people of God and to exalt the Lord your God and to worship the Lord your God. And what's the last thing that you're doing as the sun's going down? You're gathering with the people of God and you're praising the Lord your God. And so it would seem as though these morning and evening services are bookends that cause us to see that this whole day is for Him and to meditate upon Him and to be refreshed by Him. I just have a hard time thinking that when Ella asks me, as she does every day, she's not here tonight because she's sick, Dad, are we going to church tonight? I don't think that I can look at her and say, no, I think we've had enough of the Lord's people and his word this morning. We're going to bail out. God has given us a place and a people and his word for our sustenance. We must not neglect the worship of the Lord our God. This place is for you, for your nourishment to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we praise God the Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together here tonight. We thank you for the word of God and how you have orchestrated even hardships in the life of men like Asaph that we might learn from them. And even as I contemplate the preciousness of this local assembly, my mind is... is ran through with thoughts of men and women in our fellowship who are facing serious hardships or have and how you have used those hardships to display the brilliance of your girding grace and showing your marvelous beauty through them 
Lord, I thank you for the people of God and how you use them to sustain us. I thank you for the worship of God and how it is not man-centered, but how it truly and biblically causes us to look to you. The person of God reorients the way that we view the world around us, and it sustains us in the most heartbreaking, mind-shattering events going on in our life. And so today, for the heartbroken believer, may they be comforted in you. May they find you to be their all in all. We ask this to be done in Christ's name. Amen.